All right, you can go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20, we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 20. That's the whole chapter. Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 through 20. Deuteronomy 20, starting in verse 1, these are the words of God. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid for the, of them. For the Lord your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt, is with you. When you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. He shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. The officers also shall speak to the people, saying, Who is the man that has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him depart and return to his house, otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would dedicate it. Who is the man that has planted a vineyard and has not begun to use its fruit? Let him depart and return to his house, otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would begin to use its fruit. And who is the man that is engaged to a woman and has not married her? Let him depart and return to his house, otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would marry her. Then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. When the officers have finished speaking to the people, they shall appoint commanders of armies at the head of the people. When you approach the city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. If it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in the city and all the spoils you shall take as booty for yourself, and you shall use the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations nearby. Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city a long time to make war against it in order to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging an axe against them, for you, shall, for you may eat it from them, and you shall not cut them down. For is the tree of the field of man, that it should be besieged by you? Only the trees which you know are not fruit trees you shall destroy and cut down, that you may construct siege works against the city that is making war with you until its fall. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we give thanks to you because on this Sabbath we celebrate all you have done the week before. We celebrate the dominion you have given us through the work of our hands. 
together we fellowship and rejoice in the giving of your Son who has restored us and has restored to fellowship with you and with each other. We ask and pray that your Holy Spirit would apprehend our minds and thus our hearts for the tasks that we have before us this coming week. Help us to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. In 1810, 1810, Frederick Gentz wrote about the problem of thinking that the American War for Independence was the fuel for the fire of the French Revolution. Many believed that the two revolutions were the same. Um, Gentz wrote in opposition to this view, citing four main differences between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. Well, first, the French, excuse me, the American Revolution was rooted in a legal tradition with legal principles that were attached to them. Um, the French Revolution, though, moved on illegal and unprincipled presuppositions. Second, the American Revolution was a defensive war, a battle fought in order to preserve liberties. So the American Revolution was defensive. The French Revolution was, however, quote, from beginning to end, in the highest sense of the word, an offensive revolution. Third, the American Revolution had an objective which was informed and unwavering. It was limited in its scope, but the French Revolution had no objective at all, but instead went on because of, quote, arbitrary will and of boundless anarchy. Fourth, and lastly, the American Revolution, because of its limited scope and its, limited le and its legal nature, it was met with limited resistance. However, the French Revolution could only, quote, force its way by violence and crimes, end quote. So without a doubt, the American counter-revolution, which is what we should be calling it, um, the true revolutionary activity, as we know historically, was the actual encroachment from the king of England. So we should be calling it a counter-revolution. It was utterly and entirely distinct from the French Revolution that happened just a few years later. The French Revolution was built on socialism um, and radical ideas of the Enlightenment. Thus, it was atheistic, it was pagan, it was idolatrous thinking that fueled it. Because the Enlightenment sought to rid God from the equation altogether, it also elevated man, giving him supremacy over every area of life. Now that would have massive repercussions from everything from art to political theory, but perhaps the most impact would be in the realm of war. It's incredibly ironic that the topic of war, like immigration and status education, and it's rarely discussed in our churches. And the irony being the fact that America, America has been at war 93% of its entire existence. 93%. According to the Center for Research on Globalization, since the birth of our country, we've only had peacetime for 21 years. Pick any year between this year and 1776, and there is a 91% chance that we've been at war that particular year. According to the center, no U.S. president can truly be considered a peacetime president. We've not only gone, we, we have not gone a single decade without war. 
The only five-year span that we've been without war was from 1935 to 1940 during the isolationist period of the Great Depression. So from the war of in, for independence to the constant war with Native Americans, Native Indians, all the way up to the wars with Mexico and World War I and World War II, and even today to the, quote, war on terror, our nation is blood-soaked and stained with a history of violence and war. Of course, this is only perpetuated because Americans are taxed to their wits end. According to one site, in fiscal year 2017, that's last year, listen to these stats. Military spending, just, just what we spent on the military, was $598.7 billion. $178 billion was spent on veterans, and foreign aid was $46.3 billion. So that's a total, if you're doing the math in your head, which maybe one of you might be, that's a total of $823 billion spent on national defense. This year, all of those numbers are increased, right? And the total spent this year is projected to be up to $894 billion. So the budget for next year, fiscal year 2019, is $951.5 billion. So we are literally only three years away from spending $1 trillion in one year on national defense. All of this is on a national deficit of $779 billion this year. Our, <laughs> I, I looked at this stuff and I thought, oh my. <laughs> you, you sort of know it's out there, but you, then you dig in and whoa, the rabbit hole. Our national debt, according to usdebtclock.org, we're heading close to $22 trillion. $22 trillion. Regarding defense spending, the U.S. accounts for, listen to this, the U.S. accounts for more than one-third of global spending. Out of all the nations that spend on national defense, we account for more than a third of it. We spend... In one year, what the next 14 countries in line spend combined. And then, we double what the rest of the globe spends combined. Just to give you an idea. More stats, because we all like stats. More stats about war come from the June 2014, it's four years old, but it's the issue of the American Journal of Public of Health. 90% um, of deaths in war are civilians. On average, 10 civilians die for every one combatant. Also note, uh, noted in that site was the fact that the U.S. launched 201 out of 248 armed conflicts since the end of World War II. So the numbers prove something very, very simple. Without a doubt, America is a welfare and a warfare state. Without a doubt. We are a welfare and a warfare state. So what does the Bible teach about war? Does it teach anything about war? Well, it does, as we'll see. In verses, look at, look at your, your passage here. In verses 1 through 9 in chapter 20 here in Deuteronomy 20, we have what we call preparations for warfare. And then in verses 10 through 20, we have the rules for warfare. So we have the, what, what do we have to do in preparation for war? And then what are the rules to it? 
Regarding the preparation, look at the following in verse 1. In verse 1, it's clear that when Israel was confronted with the reality of war, they needed to trust God above all. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. So they needed to trust God most of all. So regardless of the size of the enemy army, regardless of how many horses and chariots, we read Deuteronomy 17 earlier, that the king was prevented from um, having a centralized banking system. That's all the gold, right? He was, permit, he was not permitted to, to have all these foreign wives, which meant foreign allegiances with pagans and thus compromising the covenant. And he was not to have horses, which are simply the war, the war animal of choice. He wasn't to have all of those. If you remember, David had accounted for the census, and God did not appreciate that, to put it lightly. And that was a war issue. So, the, so we have here, regardless of all of that, the number one most important thing is that they needed to be ruled by a healthy fear of God. Interestingly, in verse 2, <clears throat> It's the priest who gathers them together to remind them not to be afraid, but instead trust God above all. Verse 3. Why? Why should they trust God in war? Because as verse 4 says, the Lord God is the one who goes with them into battle. It is he who fights. Now, Deuteronomy speaks on several different occasions about warfare. Uh, chapter 20, chapter 21, you can read it in chapter 23, 24, and 25. Numbers chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, tells us that the Israelite militia, the Israelite army, was only consistent of males who were 20 years and older. 20 years and older. The older men, they would have been more in line to be generals and commanders due to the fact that they're older. They've probably been in this sort of situation before, so they have that um, sort of that, that previous experience. We also know from the books of 1 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings quite a lot about war. So here are just some general principles that you can pull from all of those passages that I, I referenced. Number one, how do you do godly warfare? Well, War is done on God's terms per God's orders. God's terms per God's orders. You don't get to, to be the President of the United States and go and just drop bombs anywhere you want. That's a different issue we'll get to later. Number two, men, the men were to be consecrated. They were to be committed to holiness before God. Godly warfare required these men to be consecrated, to make sacrifice, to be right with God before proceeding. Number three, numbers do not matter. God fights. How many times do we see that in Scripture? Gideon, all right, paring down the army. Numbers do not matter. God goes before us. God goes before us. Number four, one of the ways God wins is by confounding God's enemies. Joshua 10, Judges 4, confounding the enemies of God. Number five, after a war, any of the spoils belong to God because it is he who is the one who wins the battle. So these are just general principles. And some of that we sort of have to contextualize to, to our day and age, as you'll see, and we get there a little bit later. Now, what is easily derived from various portions of Scripture is the fact that this was voluntary conscription. Voluntary. In order to fight a war, it also had to be a defensive war. 
And when a defensive war is transacted, courageous men were the ones who were more apt to want to fight. What man does not want to protect his land, his neighbor, his liberty, and his family? What, so voluntary conscription, this is a, not a draft, a mandatory draft. We'll get into the standing army thing. That's, that's a problem too. But this was, this was a defensive war. And when that happened, when you were doing something on defensive terms, what man would not have the courage to stand up and want to fight to protect himself, his neighbor, his liberty, and of course his family? Because it was done on this voluntary basis, God's law never, ever, ever permits a standing army. It never permits a standing army. And this allowed for both conscientious objectors to decline, and it was also done in such a way as to make sure that both the army was strong and the, f and, and, and the family and the dominion mandate was still pursued. Look at the text. Verse 5. In verses 5 through 7, we see that God's law grants exceptions to military, voluntary military service. For starters, the man who just built a house and hasn't even used it yet the man who planted the vineyard and hasn't even reaped the benefits of this yet for his business, right? Or the man who was newly, he was engaged but not even married yet. What, what happened to those guys? Well, guess what? God's law sends them home. Let it go home. Why? Because the Christian faith is future-oriented. The Christian faith is future oriented. The task of godly dominion in the world must go on. When a war is transacted, we don't suddenly stop the future orientation of our faith. Businesses, property, that's what he's covering here. Property, business, family. All of that must go on. It must continue. Now, while some would be eager to fight, some would be very excited about the prospect of defending themselves and their homeland, they would no doubt have the tendency, though, to be more distracted. can't tell you how many people. I mean, I've known several. They're newly married, and the wife is deployed for years. That's not, that's not future-oriented thinking. That's the state bossing you around. So no doubt, people that were in these types of situations launched a new business, haven't even gotten the dollar bill on the wall from your first sale, right? Didn't even get that far. They're out in war, and what are they thinking about? They're thinking about that stuff. So they could be distracted. And if you're distracted, what do you become? A liability for the war. This type of preparation is incredibly important for it honors the true purpose of life and liberty, the pursuit and the priority of the family and the dominion mandate. The other thing considered in verse 8 is the fact that there may be some who are just genuinely scared. They're genuinely scared. They're faint-hearted. They're afraid. Not only is he a liability to the objective of the war, he's a liability to his fellow soldiers now because he's scared. He's not real comfortable with the gun, so he may shoot himself or his friend. Men who are timid and scared are men who will make mistakes in battle. And the last part of preparation is making sure the officers have the commanders put in place so this organized militia is ready for battle. Now, a couple quick things. We've already talked about the Dominion Mandate. 
um, through the vehicle of individuals and the family, they're the utmost priority in God's law. God cares about that. And we'll come back to that in the next section, too, because he ends the chapter on that note, too. The other thing to consider is that instead of this being a, a draft under this centralized bureaucratic control, this was a militia. This was a militia. The people, the text says, they come together to defend themselves, to defend their neighbor, to defend, defend their homes. So this is not, already, this is not a top-down statist war machine like what we have in America. These are men with chests ready to defend themselves, not political pawns meddling in the affairs of other nations. So that's the preparation for warfare. Those are the things that have to be done ahead of time. It's a defensive fight. That's the basic rule for what constitutes just war. If, you, if you've ever studied just war theory, that, that, that's the biblical position. You only fight a defensive war. Now, the priority is always the carrying out of the godly dominion in the land. We, we know that. Godly dominion must go forth. And this was to be protected from external threats. So we, not, we are not to be sort of this war hawk. Um, you know, somebody looked at us wrong. Let's go bomb their city. And, and, but we're also not pacifists where, where we just sit by and watch. Right? If an intruder breaks into your home at night, you have permission from God's law to take his life in defense. So we're not pacifists where we just, you know, sort of not protect our wives and our kids, men. We're not pacifists, but we're also not war hawk people where we're just looking for an excuse to go send some B B-52 bombers and just light up the night, right? That's what, right in the middle is a just war, the defensive war where we are protecting ourselves and we're supposed to be protecting our families and the dominion mandate that God has given us. So this is not a political ego trip, right? We're not, this isn't an, an experiment of how to become the policeman of the world. It's covenantal conviction. Now the next section, verses 10 through 20, is all about the rules while in the war. There are rules to how you fight. Not only do you fight defensive wars, and that's good, that's, that's the biblical prescription, but what do you do while you're in battle? Are there rules for that as well? Well, yes, there, there are rules. God covers the, God's law covers the whole topic from front to back. In verses 10 through 15, we see that Israel is in a distant city. They're outside of the land of Israel. And they're there because they've been attacked. Now, the first order of business, verse 10 says, is to offer terms of peace. Offer terms of peace. See, God's desire is that the kingdom of God be present on earth as it is in heaven. And though war is sometimes a necessary reality, it is not supposed to be a perpetual reality. 93% of our history, we've been at war. It's inexcusable. Because the priority is the dominion covenant being exercised by all men, peace, peace is offered instead of defeat. We want peace in the nations. And what happens if they are fighting a defensive war, they're there and they're offering terms of peace, what happens if the terms of peace are accepted? Well, the nation or the people group becomes a subordinate state. They become a subordinate state. See, applied today, this would be akin to us going, and if, if uh, Kuwait wanted our help, we've been in the Middle East for now a long, long time, and if Kuwait wanted our help, then Kuwait should have become another state of the United States. 
they should have been grafted in, if you will. If they want our assistance, they should have become another state. And the reason for this is because nations are not supposed to be the world police. Civil governments are not supposed to meddle in the affairs of other countries. God has given the magistrate authority over their proper jurisdiction. They are not to go poking and dropping bombs in places they have no business of doing. See, it's immoral for our government to expend lives and money and property all in the name of the good old USA. It's a moral issue. See, if individuals desire to help, that's one thing. If, if, you, if you men came to me and said, look, we, we, there's, a, there's a few militias that are going and we're going to go and defend Kuwait from the butcher of Baghdad, right? That was... Saddam's name. That's one thing. But for a government to go and expend lives is, is, a, is not a good thing. That's an immoral thing. So it's not coerced. It's personal. See, but bureaucrats in D.C. making decisions about the lives of others is entirely easy, but it's entirely immoral. So, again, if Kuwait wanted any other country or any other country wanted the United States to help and get protection from this perceived enemy, that the only way that could be done, biblically speaking, is for them to take on themselves the jurisdiction of America. Because they want, they want the help, they want the money, but they don't want to, they don't want to follow our jurisdiction. That's a problem, biblically speaking. They have to be grafted in to receive help. Why? Because of this principle right here in the text. Remember, this is voluntary conscription. Men are defending themselves. God has given them the jurisdiction to do such a thing. See, the outcome of war is not to be nation-building and wasted spending, but peace and nation acquisition, or what we will call discipleship, the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Missionaries before bombs. That's the biblical model. Israel was to make all attempts at peace, all attempts, go above and beyond making terms of peace known. See, a, Christian, a Christian's theology of war is very simple. Listen carefully. Peace, if possible, dominion, covenant, at all, at all costs. Peace, if possible, dominion, covenant, at all costs. Because we're future-oriented, because we're thinking about discipling the nations and so on and so forth, we want peace, absolutely. But we're also looking, think of the Kuwaiti thing. We'll come defend you, but we're going to plant a whole bunch of churches, and you need to acknowledge Jesus Christ. You want our help? That, that's how it works, biblically speaking. See, if they became, if they accept the terms of peace, in the Bible here, they became workers. The jurisdiction takes over, and they then are grafted into the political covenant. So the conquered city-state becomes a vassal region of that, their authority. They would become a Hebrew state. But what happens if it's not accepted? What if they reject all the, the weeks and weeks of, of negotiations, the terms of peace? What if they reject that? Remember, this is a defensive war. Israel was attacked, they get, gather their army, and they go to this city-state, and they are there, and they have every right to fight back, but what does God say? Go the extra mile, get terms of peace. What if they reject it? Well, the Bible is very, very clear in verse 12. Look at what it says. 
However, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. You may fight. You may go to war. See, to besiege a place is to cut off its supplies. You cut off the supplies and you wait them out. See, the idea here is the pursuit of forced surrender without bloodshed. We don't want bloodshed. Anybody who wants that doesn't know Jesus. See, again, God's law desires the preservation of life, not the bloodbath that is war. However, if this does not work out and the aggression of the perpetrators begins and it gets heated and goes, go, then the offensive campaign is permitted. You may fight. See, verse 13 says that the men are to perish by the sword. When you go into battle, you kill the men. You take the enemy out. You are, you are not, in the Hebrew, it actually tells us that the meaning of men here, we're, not, we're talking about the fighting men. We're not talking about three-year-old toddlers. And in verse 14, it says, the women and children and the animals are to be the spoil for Israel. This is the payment for their service for fighting. They take them back and they become indentured servants. They get taught God's law. They get discipled the hard way. See, verse 15 is clear. This is to be done for the cities far away. And, then, and, and of course, it's in these verses where we find the principles for today. In verses 16 to 20, it sort of shifts a little bit. We get a historical glimpse of, of that which pertained only to Israel at that time. And in that place, there are still what we call general equity principles, however. See, the armies that dwelt within Israel were to be purged and devoted to God. They were to be destroyed and they were to be given the death penalty for their wickedness. Remember where we're reading this. What book of the Bible are we in? We're in Deuteronomy. Israel had not yet entered the land yet. God's given them the rules for warfare. And, but then there's this historical situation where they're about to go in and purge the Canaanites. And people, you have perhaps atheists will point this out to you or, well, that was just rude. Like God conquered them and killed all the Canaanites and wiped them out. And he wanted every last one of them gone. Well, that's the severity of the judgment of God. You should repent and believe the gospel. So they were to go in and they were to destroy everything. The harem principle, the Karim principle, the armies that were there were to be, to be eradicated. They were to be utterly destroyed, verse 17 says. And the reason is because their iniquity had filled up to the brim and God brought his judgment against them. That's a historical fact. God was executing his historical sanctions against the Canaanites, vomiting them out of the land, the language of Leviticus says. And the reason God was bringing judgment was because they did detestable things. They gave themselves over to idolatry. And why is it that God would want it completely eradicated? Why, he's cleansing the land, right? Why would he want that gone? Because all manner of sexual deviancy was to be purged. Was to be purged from the covenant land. The reason is because in verse 18, Israel may be tempted to follow them. They may, may be tempted to do what they do, and that would be wicked. Two more verses, 19 and 20. There are a couple of principles here in these verses. When conquering an opponent in a defensive war, fruit trees were not to be cut down. Why would God's law care about fruit trees, right? Why, why is that? Well, they, they could use other trees in, in the fight. They could cut them down and, and, and create more offensive weapons or defensive weapons, if you will. But they were not to destroy the fruit tree. Why? Because the dominion covenant matters and the future matters. The Bible does not permit to 
total warfare, the total destruction and annihilation of the land. The productivity of the earth is to be leveraged for the dominion mandate, not the sad reality of war. And I know I'm going to get myself in trouble for this. I just know it. So I'm just going to say it. It was immoral to drop atomic bombs in Japan. Oh, but they, they bombed Pearl Harbor. What does God's law say? You go to them and offer terms of peace. You go to them and you show them the bombs you have. You offer terms of peace. You don't kill innocent civilians in war. It is immoral and it goes against God's law. So the covenant matters. The dominion mandate matters. The future matters. The productivity of the earth is supposed to be for the dominion mandate, not the sad reality of war. You don't go and cut the fruit trees. At every turn, God's law protects the future and productivity of man, especially in times of war. That's what God's law does. It protects the future and productivity of man, especially in times of war. You see, war, according to God's law, is meant to be a process of restoration. Kind of like how excommunication is intended to be the last straw in getting someone to, re to repent and then be restored to fellowship, right? Because men do not trust Christ, who is our only peace, God's law must be wielded in such a way as to promote peace at every single turn. Only when the hardness of heart comes in it, does it prevent this type of thing. And only when that happens are men permitted to engage in defensive warfare. So in summation, I'm going to sum it up really quickly. The Bible says very clearly that we are to have no standing army, only voluntary militias, defensive wars only, not wars of aggression and meddling, and third, peace is the primary objective. That's what God's law teaches us about war. So the gospel of the kingdom of God with Christ the king at the helm is the deployment of God's law into every single area of life. This means that when we consider what it means to disciple nations, we have to keep in mind that no topic is left for the humanists to try and figure out. No topic are we to say, well, we don't have an answer, so you just got to guess. No area is off limits for the kingdom of God, and no area should be ignored. Because Christ died and was raised, we now have in him legal representation and legal responsibility. And sometimes we talk about these types of things, like the immigration issue and education, and people will not like it. They will not like it. That's because they can't do anything with the meat of the word. It's like throwing a T-bone steak in, front of, in the lap of a three-month-old. They don't know what to do with it. And that's the sad reality of the American church. But alas, this is a gospel issue, and the gospel compels us to have a proper theology of warfare in accordance with God's law, not some obscure natural law that we just sort of figure out on our own. So this needs to be said right now, given our context and the things that we see happening around us. Listen very carefully. The only caravans we need to be worried about right now are the military tanks that we line up in other countries around the world. It's the only caravan we need to worry about. We don't deserve this. We don't deserve this outward blessing. 
You see how far, even just the principles in Deuteronomy 17, like America sees that and challenge accepted. We'll get horses, we'll have foreign wives, and we will have all the gold and silver we want. And what will we do with that? We will beat every nation into a bloody pulp. That's the only caravan we need to worry about, not, not, not some Hondurans coming. The, the caravan we need to worry about are the tanks that we line up all over the world. God bless Ron Paul, who called it blowback. All the stuff we see happening is because the fact that we were behind a 2009 CIA coup in Honduras. We're meddling everywhere, whether you know it or not. We, we meddled big time in South Africa and messed a whole lot of stuff up there. See, when humanists, that is the fallen men, are allowed to express their unbridled aggression and unbridled anger, the result is perpetual warfare. America is a welfare and a warfare state, and it shows no sign of letting up. Basic to economic theory is the issue of supply and demand. If you have a standing army, you need a ton of money. And in order to justify the spending, you need to create demand. So what do our politicians do in order to create this fiat demand? We intervene and we meddle on a large scale, and thus we create demand for more military spending. And all of this is in the name of safety and security, isn't it? Do you want to be safe and secure? Listen, the provisions of safety and security do not come from the state. They come from our covenant Lord who bestows such gifts on a covenantally faithful people. I'll say it again. The provisions of safety and security do not come from the state. They come from our covenant Lord who bestows such gifts on a covenantally faithful people. See, there is a reason Jesus said that he would never leave us or forsake us. There's a reason the Bible says that God goes before his people to fight for him, for them. Because safety and security are only found in him. He is our refuge. He is our rock. That's our confession, is it not? But fallen men will not be satisfied with this answer. Men resort to violence because the unregenerate heart knows not peace. You see the connection? To the degree that peace is in the hearts of people is the degree of peace that we will have in a nation. See, the moment you yank something out of the hands of a free individual and then you place it in the hands of the collective, that's the moment you have lost. You have lost. We, we have handed our individual responsibilities to the state in just about every single area of life, whether it's charity, taking care of widows and orphans, education, and especially war. And we have stripped our own rights away by allowing politicians and teachers and pastors to let it happen. We have exchanged liberty for protection, all at the cost of more and more money and more and more bloodshed. We simply cannot tax our way into prosperity, nor can we bomb our way into freedom. Can't do it. You cannot tax your way into prosperity, and you cannot bomb your way into freedom. So now what? What will, what will God do with a people who have outsourced their individual responsibility? What will he do? What will God do with a church that has farmed out their calling? 
Listen, the outward blessings on our country that we experience right now will turn into a noose around our neck should God choose to ratchet up his sovereign judgment. To whom much is given, much is required. And when the much required quota is left unfulfilled, when it isn't satisfied, guess what? The judgment comes in to match it. We have been given so much. And we have squandered it. We have farmed it out. We have refused to do things God's way. And those blessings will become a noose around the neck. And God will bring his sovereign judgment. And so what do we have to do? Well, we have to do a whole lot of repenting and a whole lot of gospel preaching. (laughs) A lot. And a lot more than what we're doing. Massive amounts more than what we're currently doing. It is absolutely unacceptable that abortion clinics aren't lined with hundreds and thousands of people every single day. It's unacceptable. So we got to do a whole lot of repenting. We had to do a whole lot of gospel preaching. And we have to trust Jesus and his entire word in the process. That's the only way out. That's the only way out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask and pray that this nation would obey you. We have a tremendous task before us in discipling the nations, and the thought of discipling our one nation is absolutely overwhelming. We come to you in repentance, acknowledging our complicity in the bloodshed. Instead of fighting on your terms, we have fought with aggression on the terms of the humanist and the pagan. We ask that you would lift up our heads and lift up our hearts. We desire to teach the nations how to obey you, and we know that the only way this is going to happen is if we are quick to repentance and even quicker to obedience in every single area of life. Help us to root out those areas of inconsistency, all for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.